Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity that is ours to get together in your word. We pray that you'll illuminate our thoughts and our minds and help us to understand this exquisite writing that is part of the Holy Scriptures. We pray, Father, for the Holy Spirit to help us see the great truths, not only as it applied to then, but to me now. For I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned a moment ago, we're going to start a new series called Lithographs, Impressions of Inclusion. Now, that word lith- lithograph is a fun word, isn't it? What does that mean? Lithograph is a term that comes from a German invention brought to life in 1796. Uh, it was invented by a little-known playwright, Alois Senenfelder. Uh, he was an individual, after writing some of his scripts with greasy crayon on limestone, he accidentally discovered the process whereby he could print, putting ink on that limestone, and print onto the pages so that it could be distributed to the masses. Well, that discovery back in 1796 spread throughout Europe, and it became one of the most popular modern uh, mass printing methods until the invention of the printing press. So portrait artists and illustrators in the popular press would often use it for economic purposes, And so this term, uh, lithograph, became a generic term of an original piece of art or an original illustration or an original writing that could be copied many times over for mass distribution. And there's a similarity to the Gospels. As you know, in the first century, when the writers of the Bible wrote their initial copies, it was on a scroll. It's also called papyrus, which was the type of material that was used to write their material. And unfortunately, they didn't have the opportunity to have a Xerox machine to be able to copy it and to send it around to different churches. So scribes would often need to copy by hand, and that's where we get the many different manuscripts that are often used by biblical scholars to try to retrace back to what the original writing was that we have in our Bible. Well, the original writer that we're going to look at is Luke, and he developed the original lithograph, in other words. He wrote the initial scroll. A technical term that is often used is the atographa, Uh, That is the primary scroll that was used by where other copies were made. Now, we don't have the original scrolls anymore. We have no idea what happened to the original scrolls, but we do have many scrolls that are used in a process known as textual criticism to be able to compare and to see what the original scroll might have said. So there are four of these type of lithographs in the New Testament They are also called Gospels, and there are four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of these writers had a particular purpose as to why they wrote what they did. They each have a different theme uh, that they write about, and we're going to see in the coming weeks that one of the themes that Luke is trying to write about 
is a phrase that is used about Jesus, that he is not just the son of God, that's John's theme, but he is also the son of man, which is interesting. That he is the individual that can relate to the common person. That he is the individual that relates to all people, no matter what walk of life they are from. And so we'll see in the weeks ahead that Jesus as the son of man is an individual that comes to relate to who we are in the middle of our circumstances, whether they're good or bad, whether they're difficult or whether they come easy. And what we're going to find is he's going to highlight a cast of characters that are actually overlooked by the other three writers, Matthew, Mark, and John. And so Luke takes intentional um, direction in his book to include stories out of the life of Jesus that the other gospel writers do not. So what we're going to do in the weeks ahead is we're going to look at Luke's gospel. Now we need to ask a question as we get started. What is a gospel? Now when you open, if you take the 40-day challenge, the gospel of Luke, you're going to think that it's a biography of Jesus. And nothing could be further from the truth. None of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, include everything about the life of Jesus. But they choose, they pick and choose stories that are pertinent to their theme. And a Gospel is not a biography. And the other thing that often confuses people, some people try to do the, I want to read through the entire Bible. And if they come to the Gospels and they read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in sequence as it's found in the Bible, they're going to go, some of the stories sound the same, but it seems like the setting is different or the timing of it is different. And if you take quick notice of that, what you're going to find is they're the same stories sometimes, but they're often in different places in the life of Jesus. That's because in a Gospel It's not in chronological sequence. We, living in America, Western mindset, like to think A to Z in sequence. That's not the first century. The first century will take historical events and persons, but often will place them in different places to highlight certain things and make an emphasis. Thirdly, they differ in the way they tell some of the same events. So Jesus cleanses the temple early in John chapter 2, but in the rest of the Gospels, it's really late in his ministry. So it has often led some people go, did he go into the temple two times and drive out the money changers, or did he only go once? Welcome to the world of biblical scholarship, trying to figure some of these things out. Number four is they're concerned about meaning and understanding to their particular audience. And so, if we can keep that in mind, when we come to Luke, what we're going to find is that in his lithograph, in his original writing, he's going to highlight a term that we hear all the time, but many times we misunderstand what it means. So, how many have heard the word gospel before? Okay, we've all heard the term gospel, right? Well, these are the Gospels, plural, four different writings. But when we use the word gospel, it basically means good news. Well, we in the West a lot of times have associated the good news to an after-death experience. In other words, when we die, we go to be with the Lord, 
We are reunited with those who have gone before us. And there's nothing wrong with that concept, but that's not the original idea of what gospel means. Gospel means the good news of Jesus and his kingdom. So you saw in the video, a couple of different times in the video, that it's a kingdom that kind of turns the world right side up. Because it runs differently than the kingdoms of our world. So the gospel is not primarily about going to heaven after you die. It includes that, but it's about the way the kingdom of God works. And so if we'll keep that in mind, what we're going to find is gospels are a specialized type of literature with a unique genre, and each of these gospels have their own voice, their own perspective, and their own particular emphasis. And in the gospel of Luke, what we're going to find is It's a gospel of inclusiveness. It's a gospel that brings all these people together under the good news of Jesus coming to establish a different kind of kingdom than the empires of this world. So we might want to ask a second question, who is Luke? Well, Luke is primarily an associate with the Apostle Paul. You'll find in the gospel, uh, I mean in the book of Acts, that he travels with Paul on many of his missionary journeys. But here's an interesting fact. He is the only Gentile by birth that's an author in the Bible. All the other authors are Jewish. So he brings a unique perspective. He's Greek. He's an individual that was a proselyte to Judaism. So he began to become familiar with the Torah and he became familiar with the history of the nation of Israel. And I think he was drawn by the concept of the true and living God. That's what the term monotheism means, one God, rather than like the Romans had a pantheon of gods. They worshiped the sun and the moon and you know all these different things. And I think Luke was drawn to that. And what he did is he began to attend many of the Jewish synagogues where he's drawn into the Jewish story. And he hears about people like Abraham and Sarah and Daniel and all the stories that you find in the Old Testament. What's unique is his vocation. He's a doctor. He's an individual that was trained as a physician, and it might explain why he looks at these particular people the way he does. He emphasized lepers and blind and lame because he's a physician. And then lastly, he's a companion of the apostle Paul, and we read of that in the book of Acts. So, Having said that, what is the main theme that's found in the Gospel of Luke? I guess it could be summarized when he quotes Jesus. Jesus says in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, that's told in a story about a wee little man named Zacchaeus, okay? Zacchaeus is an individual that's a chief tax collector, He's hated by all of his fellow Jewish people because he's the tax man, right? Okay, And yet, he's drawn by Jesus, and the crowd is surrounding Jesus, and we'll come to this story uh, later. And he goes and he climbs a sycamore tree because he couldn't see above the crowd. Jesus passes by, and he says, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I'm coming to your house tonight for dinner. The crowd would look and say, He's going to dinner at the chief tax collector's house. That's kind of like you going, yeah, 
I'm going with the IRS agent to have cocktails tonight. What are you doing? Are you crazy? <laughs> he might call for an audit on you or something. But that's the, it is there that Zacchaeus hears about Jesus, is up close to Jesus, and in the middle of dinner he stands up and he says, if I've done anyone wrong, I'm going to pay back four times the amount that I swindled from them. And Jesus looks at this man and he says, salvation has come this day to this house. Interesting. He changed and he transformed simply because he was up close and personal to Jesus. Now, what I want to do today is just talk in general about the characters that are found in Luke chapters 1 and 2. Luke chapter 1 begins like this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Luke was never in the presence of Jesus himself. He never had a first-hand encounter with Jesus. But he learns about the story secondhand. And it says here, with this in mind, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So he singles out this man by the name of Theophilus, or this group of people that are known as Theophilus. We don't know who Theophilus is. And actually some scholars think it might be a group of Jesus lovers or God lovers because it's combining two words, theos meaning God, phileo meaning love, lovers of God. So this might be a group of people he's addressing that he wants to tell the story to about Jesus and what he came to do. Well, Luke begins to tell this story by talking about people that have been kind of pushed to the side. So how many of you are familiar with Garth Brooks' song, Friends in Low Places? Anybody familiar with that song? Okay. Actually, it's quite old now. That came out in 1990. So the idea of that song was born uh, when a guy by the name of Eddie Bud Lee, uh, one of the co-writers of the song, was having lunch with some of his friends at the Tavern on the Row in Nashville. And when the check came, he realized he had forgotten his wallet and his money. And uh, he was asked how he's going to pay for the meal. And here's his quote, don't worry, I have friends in low places. I know the cook. And that, that kind of inspired that song. Well, that song inspired me for the title of this message, but I changed it a little bit. Jesus is friends in lower spaces. Because the people that are in chapters 1 and 2 find themselves kind of pushed to the side. Well, who are these people? Well, if you listen closely to the video there, there's a combination. Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph, shepherds and the angels. And then the end of chapter 2 finishes with the story of two old people named Simeon and Anna. And so what Luke does is he spotlights these people and he then tells their story. So first the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah and Elizabeth were told in chapter 1 are very old. They had been praying for years to have a child, but Elizabeth was barren. She couldn't have a child. 
And Zechariah was an old priest, and he never had an opportunity to go in and offer up incense in the temple. Well, here he's nearing the end of his career, and finally he is chosen to go in and to light the incense in the temple, and it is there he meets the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel comes to him and tells Zechariah that you're going to have a son, and even Elizabeth in her old age is going to conceive and give birth to a baby, and after this baby is born, you're going to name him John. And we know of him as John the Baptist, the one who is the cousin of Jesus that prepares the way for Jesus' earthly ministry. And so what we find taking place is that Zechariah is so dumbfounded by this appearance that he, he's left speechless. But Elizabeth finds out she's pregnant. And it is there that this story sets in motion here the start of the gospel for the way of the Messiah to come in to the earth. So two people, quite old, like Abraham and Sarah, that was said in the video. Sarah too was barren, couldn't have a child until her late age, and she gives birth to Isaac. So it is a repetition of a very early story in the Old Testament. This time, Zechariah and Elizabeth are going to have a son that is going to lead the way. Then, Mary and Joseph are introduced into the text. Mary is on the other end of the spectrum. Mary is a teenage girl, possibly 13 or 14 years old. She just had possibly... Her first period, it was then often that men took women to be their wife at very young age. Joseph is betrothed, that is engaged to be married to Mary. And here's this teenager from the north up in Galilee. And she was an individual that was from a lower class. She didn't have a lot of money. People up in Galilee were often looked down upon in the capital city of Jerusalem because they're from up north. So she has a couple things going against her. She's young, she's poor, and she's from up north. She's not from the capital. So Joseph is told that Mary is going to have a, a baby, and he says, well, I don't know how this can be because we've never had relations. Mary herself doesn't understand how this is going to be, but she believes, and she says, let it be done as you say. And so we're told that the text goes on and she will eventually give birth to the baby after she has been drawn out of her own little village up in Nazareth all the way down to the city of Bethlehem because there's another character by the name of Caesar who calls for a census and all the people have to go back to their tribal territory to be counted. So here's this poor girl that's pregnant She's ready to give birth. She's got to travel, uh, you know, dozens of miles, possibly up to 100 miles. And what we find is that when she gets to Bethlehem, there's no place for her to give birth. You know this story. It's the Christmas story, right? And so she gives birth to Jesus, lies him in a manger. The text then goes on and introduces us to the shepherds. This group of people who are outcasts, this group of people that do the dirtiest of jobs, 
They live outside all the time watching uh, sheep. They are individuals that are smelly. They are individuals that uh, do the jobs nobody else wants to do. Nobody looks up to them. Nobody honors them. They aren't paid very much. And yet, this angelic host appears to them and says, there has been one that has been born to you this day who is the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And they pick up and they go to this spot where Mary and Joseph have just welcomed Jesus into the world. And it is there that the shepherds welcome Christ into the world as well. Now, the video did not introduce you to Simeon and Anna. They too are quite old. And when Jesus is born, to follow the law, he had to be circumcised on the eighth day. And so Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple area where he's going to be circumcised. And there is an old man named Simeon and a widow by the name of Anna that recognize that God is doing something new in the world and they welcome this news and Simeon proclaims that this is the one that will be uh, the rise and fall of many. In other words, there will be those that will be lifted up on the shoulders of Jesus and there's those that will be brought down because they will see him as a threat and will eventually kill him because he is such a threat. So here's the cast of characters. Now, all of them, in a sense, are the lowly ones in God's eyes. You know, the Greek and Hebrew words for lowly signify a place of humility, a place of being pushed down by others. It describes the poor and the powerless and those who struggled with a variety of physical and mental illnesses. In Hebrew, the word is characterized with this phrase, Am Ha-Aretz. These are people of the land. We understand that in Cleveland. We live in the land, right? <laughs> it's connected to sports, right? But it was a put-down. These are people of the land. It's a condescending, derogatory phrase that the educated, sophisticated, and wealthy, and religiously devout used of those who were none of these things. They were called this because they were considered ignoramus, they were considered vulgar, uncouth, possibly uneducated. They were people of the land. So Luke introduces us to these friends in lower spaces. They are in places that nobody else wants to be, but we learn something about each of them if we look closely at their story. And it pertains to us as well. It pertains to people that we will run into in the course of our lives. Take a look. Zechariah and Elizabeth. We might say these are two individually individuals that are mentally and emotionally drained. They had been praying for years and decades that they could have a son. Because if you were childless in the ancient world, you were considered to be kind of cursed by God right? The superstition that those that are barren are somehow bearing the judgment of God. And all these years they lived with this mentally and emotionally and uh, even spiritually um, trauma inside of them. 
I think we all know people at times struggle with life, mentally and emotionally, struggling with anxiety, struggling with depression, struggling with not having a sense of self-worth or um, a sense of purpose or any of those things. There are people that you meet every day that are kind of like Zechariah and Elizabeth. Life has kind of pounded them down or walked on them, right? And they have no sense of hope or healing unless there are those that come along and say, there is something that you don't know. You are deeply loved. You're deeply loved by God. The Bible says God is love. So what does God do? If God is love, then He loves, right? And He loves every one of us, including those that struggle with mental and emotional uh, trauma, those that struggle with their self-esteem and self-worth, those that need to hear that they are somebody, they're not a nobody, right? Secondly, like Mary, she was in a strange space. Think about it for a moment. Politically, she was an individual that lived up in Galilee. She was not a part of the upper class, and she was young, and she was poor, and she was looked down upon racially as well, because many that lived up in Galilee didn't have a pure Jewish line to them. At some point, there was intermarriage with others that were Gentiles and so forth. And then we have the shepherds. Uh, these are the people that were socially and economically destitute. Individuals that others say, hey, you know, don't go out in the fields at night. You know who's out there? Shepherds, right? Watch your back. And yet many of these shepherds were the ones that came and bowed down and recognized that it was the Lord that had come into the world through the incarnation, the one who takes upon himself flesh and blood so that he might resonate with who we are as individuals. These are the migrant workers. And these are the refugees. And these are the individuals that would just love to somehow be accepted by somebody, but they're the ones that get pushed aside. And then you have Simeon and Anna who physically are on the backside of their life. Uh, physically, they're deteriorating. These are individuals, I think, that possibly psychologically feel overlooked. But in God's eyes, they hold the baby Jesus on the eighth day in their arms. And Simeon holds up the baby and says, this is the one that will be the rising or the falling of many. How do we apply this? Well, it goes back to the theme that I mentioned to you a moment ago. Press on. At times we have to press on, right? We have to be patient. We have to have a sense of perseverance to be able to get through this life. This life is tough on all of us. And I think at times we've all felt some of these things, right? Where we've had mentally and emotionally spaces where we didn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Or maybe we have loved ones that we look at and we go, 
oh man, I don't know what to do but to pray for them, that God will kind of lift them up out of their depression and, and so forth. And then we all know people that have stories of being uh, prejudiced against because of who they are. They're too young, they're too old, they're too black, they're too yellow, they're too red, they're whatever, you know. And we who are white, I don't think feel this nearly as much as other people of color and what they carry. And maybe at times we feel that we've been pushed out of social circles, right? It all starts in school, and Jim's a teacher. He can see these groups starting to coagulate, those who are accepted, those who are not, those who are pushed out because they look a little bit different, right? And it all begins there, but it doesn't stop there. It continues through high school, which probably is the worst, and then into college, and then in the workplace, and people that are accepted, and those that are rejected because of who they are, where they're from, what they look like, how much they weigh, right? All that type of thing. And then physically, you know what waits all of us? Old age. And someday, we will be the ones that will need help getting up the steps, right? Someday we will be the ones that will need somebody that has stronger hands to open the pickle jar, right? What I'm trying to tell us this morning, my brothers and sisters, is it's not just the young and the wealthy and the bold and the beautiful that are loved by God. All of these individuals are deeply, deeply, deeply loved by God. Which means they should be deeply loved by us too, right? And so during Lent, maybe what we do is we take an internal look at our own life. And we might say, out of this cast of characters here, who am I? And what am I carrying? Or more importantly... Which out of this cast of characters do I look down upon? Who am I prejudiced against? And maybe God can do a healing work inside of us, right? Because anyone that's loved by God should be loved by us. It's pretty simple, really. It's not that difficult. And yet at the same time, the pressures of life cause us to push aside rather than to press on. Stand with me as we close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, and as we are just on the beginning of Lent, we ask that during this 40-day period of time that we really will take an internal look at ourselves so that we can look with favor and love upon others. Help us to know that life is a gift and love is the point and we must all make choices to be a loving presence in this world. And we're asking that as we reflect upon these things during this time, you will help us to realize how deeply loved we are by you. 
and that you'll help us to see where we're not loving toward others. And in this, Lord, let us look for the friends in these lower spaces that often get overlooked. And let us extend a hand of love, acceptance, and service to those that you deeply love. Thank you for our time together. Put your blessing upon our lunch uh, that follows, and just help us have a great time of conversation. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week, and we'll see you over at Melt, okay, in about a half hour.